Recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the good folks at the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, this is Restoring Darkness podcast. This episode of Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Ariamax lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Ariamax lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back, folks, to the Restoring Darkness podcast. On today's show, I have Michael Marlin, aka he goes by Marlin, um, has been actively involved in dark sky advocacy for 35 years. Initially as a theatrical director, producer of an international touring show that raised awareness of the loss of darkness due to light pollution. Luma, Art and Darkness. And today as a dark sky ambassador for the International Astronomical Union and the International Dark Sky Association. Marlin is the author of Astro Tourism, Stargazers, Eclipse Chasers, and the Dark Sky Movement, which is what we call it on this show as well. It's a movement, sucker. The first book on the topic <laughs> of the new emerging market of star tourism. Isn't that interesting? As a public speaker and consultant, he addresses state tourism boards, city and, co- uh, city and county councils, utility companies, educational institutions, government agencies, elected officials, and science centers on the issues of light pollution and solutions. Because of his decades of work on stage, he is a seasoned and effective communicator of complex subjects. And I watched his TED Talk. It's good. He does a lot in 12 minutes. Marlin is currently working on The Astro Tourist, a one-hour weekly documentary television series which takes a deep cultural dive into humanity's relationship with the stars. Very important. And how light pollution is impacting the biosphere across the planet. Look, there's a ton of stuff on Marlin, um, Mind of Marlin, uh, at Mind of Marlin on Twitter. His website is mindofmarlin.com, all available on the Restoring Darkness website. If you want to go check it out there, you can click and find a lot of stuff for him right now. Marlin, what's happening, brother? It's all happening at once. Isn't that what they say in quantum? Yeah, and it's, uh, that's, that's true, actually. And when you observe it, you change it. So That's right. Um, let me ask you a question. Just to start it all off, is light pollution pollution, or is it a metaphor? Well, if you look at what it takes to actually create the light, yes, it's pollution. There are greenhouse gases created. What um, about the light itself? It, well, uh, Mexico, the government of Mexico has now claimed light as an environmental pollutant and is regulated as such. You know, this show we talk, I often talk about um, how, you know, wasted light at night. One of the things I've brought up over and over and again is that although it would be difficult, it would be useful for the Environmental Protection Agency or Environment Canada to name it as hazardous waste 
And um, because it does do a lot of damage to wildlife and to urban environments, circadian rhythm, these different kinds of things. I find it that one of the major hurdles to overcome is that the light pollution or darkness restoration movement is what we like to call it, um, is outside the environmental movement. And I think it very much need belong, needs to belong inside the environmental movement, along with plastics in the ocean, climate change, and these other issues. What are your thoughts on that? Well, policy never keeps up with technology. I mean, it just doesn't. Things are being released into the environment without any thought of the consequences or the implications. Um, the French Ministry of Health uh, did a 400-page report that was released in 2019 on phototoxicity. Hmm. And they're finding that anything like in the 400 to 450 nanometer range is actually destroying our retinal cells. Now, everybody has seen these new headlights, these new white headlights. They're blinding. Mm -hmm. And that is not metaphor. It is actually happening. Mm -hmm. The reason it hurts is because um, A, your, your pupil is trying to stop down to protect the retina. And this French study showed that it's actually destroying retinal cells, which is the stepping stone to blindness. Now, I don't know how many reports the EPA needs to get for them to go, all right, light's a pollutant. We need to regulate it as such. Because it takes so long for legislation to get happen to, for it to pass. I mean, waiting for them to do something. I think it's going to be faster to have private private industry do something. Well, that's what this show is about: is to bring the lighting industry on board and the the present uh, the association that presents it, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, is very much committed to bringing the lighting industry to the table here. And for years, um, there was a point at which the International Dark Sky Association and the lighting industry were, were at odds with one another, and that started to heal. And there's been some back and forth there, but. The way I look at it is that until the lighting industry sees itself as providing both light and darkness as equal and valuable things that people can purchase and have access to. And right now we see ourselves as the lighting industry, but I'd like to like the lighting industry see it see darkness as something we provide as well. And that's difficult because um it's a it's a re that is a paradigm shift. That word is often thrown around a lot paradigm shift. But yeah. that would be a paradigm shift. And I think the, it also, and what you know, most lighting um, professionals don't understand, it's the single biggest opportunity for our industry financially as well. Um, yes. There are thousands of, there are billions of light fixtures out there that would be in play. Um, can you talk to us a little bit I, in your TED Talks, you talked about the economic value of darkness, because what we're struggling with as an industry is the value proposition. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, thank you for the question. I just got finished doing uh, a presentation of the 15th uh, European Dark Sky Symposium on astrotourism. And one of the slides that I used was, it was a blank piece of land. I say, what is this land worth? And you can say, okay, just for argument's sake, it's $20,000 a hectare, all right? 20,000 euros. Now, if water's discovered on that land, now the land's worth 30,000 euros. If zinc is found on the land, now it's worth 300,000 euros a hectare. If gold is found, 
$300 million hectare. If diamonds are found, $3 billion a hectare, right? Mm. So for anybody living under a dark sky, you're literally living under a diamond mine. The reason I use diamond is because the twinkle, you know, like a diamond in the sky up above the world mm. is so high. When people realize that there's an economic value to a pristine dark sky, they will protect it. Mm. Just like uh, the rivers in Idaho, they've been dammed for years and the salmon population has fallen off. And they realized, wow, you know, we really make a lot more money when salmon fishers come here. Mm -hmm. The anglers, right? We make more money doing that. So they're taking the dams apart to bring back those anglers. So when you start to have the, to get the market to move, to get the, the society to move, it's going to be a market and a monetary value that's going to drive that. Not the higher angels of ourselves. No, we're driven by money. That's just the way the market works. So right now, um, the only study that out there that I'm aware of uh, was one that was done by uh, uh, Mitchell and Galway, uh, two doctors of economics from Missouri State University. They did a 10-year study on the Colorado Plateau and found in that forecast that 5.2 billion, that's with a B, 5.2 billion dollars would be generated from dark sky tourism. And another 2.4 billion in job creation, like 10,000 jobs per year. I mean, those are staggering numbers when people realize, wow, you know, people are actually gonna come and see this. So the people that live under a dark sky now, they think everybody else sees the same thing. 80% of North Americans can't see the Milky Way. More and more people are traveling to see this dark sky. So this is a, a huge boon for those people who are trying to protect the night where they live and a slow way to push it back from the, the periphery and in areas where it's kind of like just a little bit on the edge. So yeah, I think it's markets that are gonna drive this conversation much more quickly than um, policy. You know, it's interesting that I think Canadians are overrepresented in the um, in the dark sky conversation because most of Canada is a dark sky area. <laughs> yes, so yes, you, you don't have to drive very far north until you you start seeing like there was a there's a dark sky preserve in Napanee, Ontario, just north of it. And you, but it's really just keep driving north. It, the dark sky preserve just keeps going from there. Right. You know what I'm saying? And so as yeah. a child, you know, most Canadians going to summer camps or that are my age, at least in their 40s, would have had regular access to this spiritual experience on a, on a consistent basis. And then it's to discover that most Americans my age have never had an experience like that. Um, yeah. It's quite shocking, and 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 I think it's why we are overrepresented. But I, you know, I find the um, the case. Is there anything that you've come across that besides the tourism argument, which which I think is a valuable argument, but that's really a government, that's a larger entity argument. Is there anything that you've discovered in your travels for? you know, someone in the lighting industry talking to a customer. Very difficult. And I'm the host of the Restoring Darkness podcast, and I've never been able to talk a customer into purchasing dark sky friendly lighting. They all want high brightness LED glare bombs. Is there anything that you can contribute to that conversation that might yes. help out the lighting distributors? Yes. Um, one of the things I point out, and I got the city of South Lake Tahoe to change their direction after listening to my presentation. They were about ready to install 4,000 Kelvin lights. 
And then after listening to it, they decided to go to 2700 or lower mm-hmm. and they want to uh, create, become a dark sky community. So safety is an issue when you go for the lower color temperatures. And the reason uh, safety is the issue is a, a super bright light bomb is going to create glare. You can't see past glare. Our eye is going to adopt to the uh, adapt to the most bright light in this in the space. So your night vision never has the opportunity to kick in. When I presented to the Bellevue City Council, I mentioned the glaring acorn lights and and they had gone to I think 4 or 5000 Kelvin and one of the city council said I almost hit somebody in the stoplight I mean in a stop it, um, almost hit somebody in the in the pedestrian walkway mm-hmm. because they couldn't see because their eye was stopping down to protect the retina so they couldn't see the pedestrian mm-hmm. so um a lower um another thing that happens with these white lights they're actually blue they just appear white to our eyes those short blue wavelengths Uh, bounce around in the atmosphere and any kind of particulates. So fog lights, anybody out there listening, watching, fog light is an amber light because it's a longer wavelength Mm -hmm. and it penetrates Mm -hmm. fog and rain much, much better than a a bright white light. Um, Another thing that the, the, uh, the, the lower amber lights are going to provide is that they're easier on the eye. I, I have a theory. It's just a theory. It started as a hypothesis. And after I talked to an ophthalmologist and an astronomer, it's now a theory. Our species evolved over whatever, the millions of years that we've been homo sapiens. And our ocular nerve evolved being exposed to sunlight, starlight, moonlight, and firelight. Okay, the occasional lightning flash. But that's it. That's it. That's it. So our eyes, our ocular nerve has been evolving over millions of years to adapt and adjust to those types of light. The the new light that are coming online, the electric light since, you know, the 19th century and now all these white LEDs, our our nervous system doesn't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And that is why these white lights, there's another argument for that. It's like your white light is going to fool the body thinking it's daytime. So it's gonna throw off your circadian rhythms. It's going to suppress melatonin, which you need for sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, The AMA did a study in 2016 saying that anything over 3000 Kelvin has now been essentially linked to maladies such as obesity, diabetes, um, sleeplessness, depression, some forms of cancer. So this is our nervous system taking in this new frequency of light mm-hmm. and finding it very detrimental to our overall health. I couldn't agree more. There's a reason why when you're stopped by a police officer at night, they shine a bright flashlight into your car window so they can see you and you cannot see them. And so this effect is is pervasive, and but it goes both ways. So if somebody's driving a vehicle down a road and their 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 um uh their headlights are super bright, they they're like the the cop with the flashlight. But what they don't understand yeah. is that other drivers 
are less their, their visual acuity is being lowered by that. Another yes. example of this is when you have a, a like you're walking down the street at night and you see someone having a party in their living room. You can see everything going on in that living room, but the people in that bright space cannot see out into the darkness. And so yes. these kinds of effects are real, and I I don't know if we know how to measure them correctly. The next comment. We do. We do. We do. Okay. Spectrometers. A spectrometer does that. A spectrometer can measure the light frequency. They're not. They're not cheap, mm -hmm. but they can actually do that. I just want to make a comment on that. I'm here in New Orleans at Jazz Fest. I've got a bicycle. Mm -hmm. I'm bicycling everywhere, and then somehow I ended up behind one of the trolley cars, which had one of these glare bomb lights. I had to go take another road. There was no way that I mm -hmm. could stay behind that trolley car and keep biking because. You know, it was hurting. It was hurting my eyes. Uh, and for anybody listening, if you're having problems, get yellow driving glasses. Yellow driving glasses, mm. they're really cheap. Anywhere it has them. They're also called shooting the, glasses. The but same thing block, you do when you're looking at your screen at night, those kinds of glasses that people wear to stop the blue waves. I don't, I don't know about I don't know I don't know about this the glasses you wear at night, but these they're just they're cheap yellow glasses and are only twenty bucks or under, and they block all the blue wavelengths. And so the, and the, I always the other I thing about what them. you're saying about the that's an anecdote, but I have another anecdote to add to that. The, the you know, we were interviewing uh, on another podcast I do that people as they grow older, the adjustments that their eyes will make will take much longer. And this is an effect of aging. And so my mother-in-law was telling me, well, I can't drive at night anymore because after I go under that bridge with the bright lights, I can't see for a little while after. Yeah, and yeah. so she'll so she, drive under a bridge with you know that has high powered five thousand KLED lights, and when she comes out the other, she can see clearly going into the bridge. But when she comes right. out the other side, she loses her vision for three, two or three seconds, which is yes. a significantly long time when you're traveling at yes, sixty yes, miles per hour. So have her yeah. get the yellow glasses. That's going to help a lot. And this is not specific to old people. I've interviewed plenty of younger people, and they also find these lights very glaring. It yeah, well, no, for sure. But the 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 changing the adjustment uh, for sure. Now, obviously, some old people can see better than some young people, and so on. But for sure. sure, as we age, our ability to make these adjustments deteriorates. The other the other thing I wanted to comment, and I've been looking for an answer for this for ages, and you you brought it up as well. I have the same theory as you. I think humans have a very interesting relationship to fire, and the color of that color at night. And also, I think it's something to do as well with the, um, because heat and light are basically in the same spectrums of waves, I believe. And, and so I think there's something to do with comfort, calm, and relaxation that has to do with those longer waves of light that come from fire. And also the heat that's coming out of it as well, you know, makes us feel safe, puts us in a sleepy mood. Maybe you want to make love. I mean, you dim the lights. You light candles when you want to be romantic, sure, sure right? I think all these things are interrelated. And then when you, in the opposite end of that, when you have high Kelvin temperature lights, you're creating the perception of security, something, it's a prison yard. We need to see something. You should feel unsafe. Um, I think these things are triggering us at a level that, perhaps we don't totally understand. I think people know, I think anthropologists or psychologists know that there's something to this warm heat based light that makes us feel romantic and tired and intimate and so on. But I don't think we fully understand the opposite of that, which is this 
um, you know, uh, lighting uh, Chicago up, South Chicago, like a prison yard. That'll make everybody safer. I'm not so sure that's correct, actually. I think there may be an effect of making people feel like they're in a prison. Does that has that ever occurred to you that the yes the one side the one theory is correct but perhaps there's a greater theory on the other side to unpack what do you think of that okay so those are two different topics one one of the reasons why we relax under fire is that fire is flickering at an alpha wavelength mm. um, our normal consciousness is at beta and then alpha cards kind of slows us down and then you have you know theta and delta states right so. That's the uh, why when we watch a fire or a candle, we just kind of like zone out because our mind is slowing down. Now, as far as the safety issue, there has not been a single study that has linked darkness with crime, not one. Hmm. However, there have been studies that have shown that light, that light actually can increase crime in some places because it makes it easier for the criminal element to look at a car. To look mm-hmm. inside it, you know, because the lights mm-hmm. are shining in the car. You can see what's on the seat, as opposed to walking around with a flashlight, mm-hmm. which makes you look more conspicuous. And the argument I love to use about light and crime, if light prevented crime, we wouldn't have any crime during the day now, would we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think there is a relationship between, and I, I have interviewed, again, on the other show, Get a Grip on Lighting, I have interviewed uh, an ex-police officer who who studies the relationship between light and crime. And there is a correlation between certain types of crime and light that you can reduce it. Um, but we don't have any idea what the maximums of those are. And I think we could also design for darkness within those parameters, if that makes sense. It's not like nobody's advocating for no electric light at night. That's not what anyone's well, not, advocating what for. No. Yeah. Okay. So, this, this, this issue about crime and darkness, uh, one of the people every month uh, for, as an International Dark Sky Association delegate, they bring someone to speak to us. And one of the people was a community designer. And he was saying that more crime is created, not from darkness, but for the design where people were able to hide behind things. Mm-hmm. Like they showed a couple of big, uh, kind of like stanchions, the sort of thing, like when you enter a park, you've got these big, uh, you know, uh, pediments that are set up with stones and whatever, and it says such and such park, right? Mm-hmm. He says, these are places where people can hide behind mm-hmm. coming into the park. It doesn't matter how much light you have on, you can mm-hmm. still hide behind those things. So mm-hmm. design and uh, urban design has a lot more to do with safety than just simply lighting the place up. Because again, how many videos have we all seen of someone getting hijacked or carjacked right there in a gas station where it's as bright as day it happens i would i would i would i would add a correlation uh, not a correlation but um something to that where you're and and i don't want to go down this road um specifically into the incident but do you remember the kyle rittenhouse affair i'm sure you remember it yes yeah, yeah, yeah okay you could see everything in that video and it was the middle of the night like think about that okay so I have a, I think that there is, I've always wondered where there's these situations where there's rioting or where there's late night wrong kind of activity going on in the streets. I've often wondered to myself, like, you know, I wonder if they change the color of those lights and dim them slowly, if it would cue people to go home because they've proven that you can cue using 
uh, tuning, tunable lighting, tuning, and dimming. So they know that, you know, instead of going into a visiting room at a hospital um, and saying, hey, visiting hours are over, if you just start to dim the lights slowly at 7 and start yeah. to warm them, that people will go, oh, geez, you know what? It's time to go home. And the, I, I wonder to myself, like these people were running around. It's bright, almost as daytime. You can see the camera beautifully. It, you know, this kids, kids are running around and, and not kids, people are running around at night attacking one another and acting crazy. And the, the justification from police always seems to be, well, we want to be able to see, but they, but in yeah. this situation, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, wait a minute. I'm going to Yeah. Okay. A, I'm sorry, but that's bullshit. Okay. You can <laughs> see you. it is. And, and okay. And the reason it's bullshit is this. Okay. You can see just as much at 2200 Kelvin as you can at 5000 Kelvin. Then now they're going to make the argument. Well, what about color? Well, the, the, a lot of the new fixtures out now have a color rendition of uh, 70 and upwards. Mm -hmm. Right. So that means you have the distinction between purple and blue. Right. So that's mm -hmm. that's a fine line right there. Now, as far as the cameras being able to see people out in the street, I'm sorry, they have thermal imaging cameras right now mm -hmm. where they're able to see things in total darkness. Mm -hmm. So the camera light ratio has nothing to do with that either. Right. So this is an excuse that police officers use that we keep ourselves safer by having these bright lights. It's like, well, show me the data. Show me the study that shows that. Now, this police officer, there's this anecdotal uh, discussion about certain types of crime. We didn't really bring up what type of crime that was, did we? You just said certain types. Yes, um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think it is violent crimes are reduced um, by, the, the, by an increase of light. That's in my, in my mind. Okay. Now, I think it's a correlation, okay? So I, I'm not saying that I agree with the findings. I haven't read the study personally, but I believe the person that told it to me has integrity. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't, but what I would say is that you could design the same system for darkness as well. Like you could design, yes. I don't think it, I don't think it's a, it's an either or. I think you could say, okay, what kind of light level do you need? Um, how many light fixtures yeah. do you need to achieve it? Can we use cutoffs? Yeah. Can we use controls? Do we have yeah. these things? Can we achieve that same level? Nobody's advocating for no electric light. I think what we're advocating for is light that's not wasted. <laughs> Just more intelligent light, yes. better lighting. The, the argument I make here is like, if you're going to plumb a house, you got to have a license. If you're going to mm -hmm. electrify a house, electrician has to have a license. Anybody can stick up a light. Period. Yeah, for without sure. Any kind of, without any kind of credentials. Mm -hmm. Now, the, you know, the, the, the lighting issue that the, this is the biggest thing about safety and lighting. And, and all the research I've done is that we have a superstitious fear of the darkness, period. Mm -hmm. We still do. Mm -hmm. We still do. And at one time that made sense, but now it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Now, again, if darkness increases crime, you'd have a lot more crime out in rural areas where there isn't any light, would you? Mm -hmm. I mean, but but we don't. We have crime in the city where things are all lit up. Mm -hmm. You could, you know what? You couldn't light um, some cities more than you've lit them. It's it's uh, the it's gone to Jevon's paradox where there's so much artificial light in some or electric light in some areas. It's ridiculous. But let me take you in this direction. So. Sure. Um, 
the uh, the idea of the 5,000K glare bomb that everybody loved five or six years ago that now I've, we're having second thoughts on. So as a lighting professional, the first time I drove down the street and saw 5,000K wall packs, I thought, wow, that's really bright and fantastic. And doesn't that look great? And I forgot about the dark skies and everything else. And now we're going to have a bonanza of selling these LED 5,000K wall packs. But as the streets started to fill up with these, a different kind of effect emerged where it's, you know, I, 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 I kind of have the feeling it's like this. As humans, we are attracted to light at night. We like to have light at night. It makes us feel safe, as you were talking about. But this 5,000K light is more like pornography in a way. People, your art, we're perversely want it simply because it's so bright from our perspective, but we're not seeing the 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 total impact of it everywhere. And you know, I'd like I I don't know how to fix the problem for people because once they have those lights, it's hard to take them away. And that's where we are right now, where we have to take these lights. We have to get people to pay for what they will perceive to be less light and less safety. That's a big problem, Marlon. Yeah, I, I, I get it. And again, you know, uh, I've, I've put up a pilot in Bellevue, Idaho, on one block where they had 5,000K acorn lights and they put in the 2200s. Uh, everybody liked them. For sure. The street, the street was no less illuminated. Mm-hmm. It now had that warm glow that we like so much with fire. Mm-hmm. Sure. Now, for the people who have these 5,000K bombs, show them that French Ministry of Health study about it, destroying your retinal cells and leading the blindness. <laughs> you don't think they're going to get rid of them then? Show them the AMA study. You, you know, know it I, says I, it's- people are bombarded with the, that kind of stuff, you know, and I feel like one of the we've made a especially with the the whole pandemic thing we we took a wrong turn at safety at the safety turn off and now like almost anything can be justified in the name of safety if people just feel like that's safer almost anything can be justified and I, you know right now we're trying to figure out how we can go from more light is safety to responsible outdoor light at night like we have to turn back and go back because a lot a lot of fixtures have been deployed. A lot of them need to be changed. It's a great opportunity, but people have to start there admitting they were wrong, Marlon, and that's going to be another tough one. Well, to yeah, I, I I would you know nobody wants to um, say they're wrong. It's you know you have to have a, a lot of um, integrity to be able to say I was wrong. Okay, now what? Let's move forward. Let's move forward. I was wrong. Let's move forward. But it isn't I am, it's we were. Yes. Now, how many things have been put out into the market that afterwards people went, oh, that wasn't such a good idea. Yeah. Ooh, and I would call those things. Those created all kinds of weird birth defects or, or whatever. Sure. Lead pipes. Lead pipes, for instance. Everybody sure. had lead pipes. It's like, oh, uh, lead pipes, they're really a problem. Oh, well, okay, let's get rid of them. So once, yes, People get bombarded, but they've got to look at the health. If they're interested in their health, mm-hmm. then they'll put in a fixture that's going to support their health. How do we sell beauty? Because I think beauty matters as well. Because you, like you're talking about those acorn lights on a main street. Those are when they do those 5,000 K, they're so ugly. 
I mean, you can't even imagine how ugly that is. If you see, um, they, they, it's part of town and where I live, they took these nice, they had top cut off acorn fixtures where a little bit of light was allowed to go on the top of the acorn. The rest of it came down to high pressure sodium. They retrofitted them to led and it looks disgusting. It's, it's so bright. And, and like you said, that blue purple, like that, that it's actually blue light. And, um, you know, I think, how do we sell the beauty of it? That's the other thing. Okay. Okay. Well, beauty is always going to be um, an aesthetic call, right? <laughs> so, and, and the reason I say this is like, okay, I live out on the big island of Hawaii in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and I moved there to be able to have the stars. That's one of the reasons. A guy across the street buys the house. He's not from there. He's from Houston. He has no intention of living in that house. It's just an Airbnb for him. He has installed 5,000 Kelvin lights with now which shine into my house now. Mm-hmm. And I can't do anything about it. So now I finally, it's like, okay, I got to get the laws changed. So I just did a presentation to the Hawaii County Council. And their whole thing is just like, yeah, light trespass. Yeah, this, that. For them, it's about cultural preservation. Mm-hmm. And because the stories of Hawaiian myths are tied to the stars, mm-hmm. it's like, Oh, we got to protect the stars because we want to preserve cultural heritage. So as far as bringing people's awareness to it, I have always found that the headlight analogy, ask anybody about the headlights. I'm batting a thousand. Everybody says, yeah, those (laughs) things are horrible. I've not heard anybody say, yeah, I like them. They say they're horrible. They're glaring. They're terrible. I go, okay, now imagine your whole city filled with those kinds of lights. And then a light goes off in their head, mm-hmm. which by the way, doesn't create any sky glow. But the <laughs> light that goes off in their head is like, oh, well, if there's only two of those lights coming at me and it causes me that much discomfort, how much discomfort is being created when I'm in an environment and that's all I see? I can't escape it. Hmm. So. That's that's a way that I have found to get people like to wake up to this. Another thing has to do with, um, you know, the the use of LED lights is is not the only thing because there's a lot of other lighting that's out there. One of the things I point out in my TEDx talk has to do with the incandescent bulb, which is still being used. Mm-hmm. And a, a single incandescent bulb. In one, in, in one second that it takes to burn that thing, 70 watt, the equivalent energy could lift about three pounds off the ground, one meter off the ground, right? And I, I, and I figured, I learned this because I was at an event where they had a bicycle. You could pedal the bicycle and you can make an incandescent light glow or an LED panel. So the LED panel, I'm just cruising along. I flip it to the incandescent bulb and I have to pedal my ass off to get that thing to even barely flicker. Right. So that's how much energy is being used one second. Now, this guy named uh, Vandernoot, uh, he was a physics professor at Florida Atlantic University, calculated that single LED, that single incandescent bulb, that single incandescent bulb, if it's left on all night, will use the same amount of energy that you can lift a 747. Hmm. That's staggering to even try to imagine that amount of energy that is being wasted on a single light bulb, Mm -hmm. a single incandescent light bulb. Now, if people are interested in saving the planet, 
Can't say that everybody is. Some people just like to party until they burn themselves out. I mean, face it. And if they're interested in saving the planet, you got to you got to start turning off the lights because the lights are creating pollution because it takes energy somewhere down the line, whether it's coal or whether it's, you know, petrol or whatever to make that light burn. Well, I, so I, you know what? I, I'll push back a little bit there on you. Sure. Sure. And um, like I've all, I, I think the lighting industry has done most of the heavy lifting when it comes to mitigation of energy use. Like I, my own career, I mean, I've saved, I don't even know, hundreds of millions of kilowatt hours in, well, my customers have say, right. And, and, you know, I don't know whether I'm saving the planet or not. I don't, I don't like to, you know, I don't, I don't know if, if that's what it is, but I would say that after all that mitigation and all that work we did and all the incentives and everything else, um, we still increased lighting energy. <laughs> like after all of that, the, uh, the, the energy use for lighting continues to go up. That's right. And, and I look at it, I go, well, you know, this enough with this uh, bean counting mitigation. You know, if you read, if you look at Jared Diamond or you look at another guy, you remind me, some of your talk remind me of Mel Michael Schellenberger. I don't know if you know that guy. He's running for governor of California. Um, you know, these other guys, you can't mitigate your way out of this. Like there's, you know, we need clean energy. And so we can use as much of it as we want to. And, you know, it needs to be priced right or people need to be aware. One of the, one of the reasons why people don't turn off lights and in my career, I know this is because they have no connection between the light being on and the electricity bill. I mean, people will wait in line for hours to save 10 cents a gallon on gasoline, but they'll forget to turn their lights off at night. Why? Because the two things are not connected in their minds. Their hydro bill comes in. It's 150 bucks. Oh, well, right. pay it. It's not right. like directly connected for them. And so what, what I'm able to do with large factories is make that connection real show them that and sell them occupancy sensors and automated devices and this sort of stuff. And, you know, I, we'll, we'll meet, um, we'll do these, these campaigns where we'll put um, monitoring sensors into offices in a building and it, it doesn't turn the lights off. It just tells us how often that office was occupied and how long the lights were left on. And twice in my career, two times in my career, when I was giving the first presentation, the president of the company or the CEO goes, we, people got to start turning off their lights. This is ridiculous. And they went on this big sign campaign where please turn the lights off here. Please turn the lights off there. Guess who was the biggest offender? The president. Okay. He left his lights on all the time. And I showed him, I put one of the sensors in his office and I showed him, you leave your lights on 90% of the time in your office. Why? We should automate these things. And so I, I would say rather than, you know, urging people to be, conscience uh, cautious of of turning lights off we should make occupancy sensors standard in in, in people's minds my entire house my kids my, my I'm, I'm going on a bit of a rant here but um we, <laughs> my kids my kids were in a in a my dad my kids came home and they said you know the teacher asked us in the classroom today in a presentation uh whose parents is on their case to turn the lights off all the time and every kid put up the hand in in the in the room except my kids and the reason why is because they never have to turn off lights in my house. The lights go off automatically when nobody's nobody is there, and they come on automatically when someone is there. That technology is thirty years old. It exists. It's easy to use. It's cheap. It's available everywhere. So I, I'm not so I, I don't like the idea of like mitigating our way out of these things. I think we need clean energy, and we need to automate things that people forget. 
because people have too much on their minds. We need to automate these things, whether it's at the street I, municipal listen, streetlight I, level or in people's homes. I agree with you. Absolutely. And um, when we grow up as children, we're told, uh, don't leave the water running. Yeah. The, the idea of walking out of the room with the water running just wouldn't ever pass anywhere with anybody. Okay. Just wouldn't. So why would you leave a light burning? Now in public bathrooms, they have sensor faucets. Mm -hmm, you put your sure. hand under the faucet, it comes on, take your hands away. It goes off, right? Mm -hmm. This is, this is machines having to do the thinking for people Yes, because people are too stupid to clean up after themselves. Like, like the president, you know, he's expecting someone else to do that for him. There's a line that I love. I use it in my TEDx talk, leaving a light on with nobody using it is no different than leaving your oven on with no food in it. Right. I agree. I totally agree with you, except the consequences of the oven and the tap are so enormous that humans are, are like, I better turn that tap off. Otherwise, I think the consequences of turning the lights off are disconnected from the reality of it. You see it months, you see it the next month on your hydro bill and you forget, why is my hydro bill so high? I agree. But I think we should automate, we should automate everything. I agree. We can. I I agree. I agree. It, every, every, you know, the light should only be on as it is being used. And if mm -hmm. it's for decoration, only for a certain amount of time, and then it goes off. I mean, they do that in China, in Shanghai. Lights go off. I think it's at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night. All the big city lights, dark, goes dark. I mean, look at, look at how many Shanghai turns buildings. off its municipal street lighting at night? Not the, not the street lighting, okay. but all of the big lighting that are, you know, uh, the decorative lighting on the big skyscrapers okay, and stuff yeah. like that. The city Great does idea. go dark. The city does go dark. Now, uh, with these seven pin connectors that they have with street lights now, mm -hmm. if you turn the lights down 50% after midnight, you save 75% on your electric bill. Mm -hmm. And people can't even tell no, it they has won't tell been it lower. No, they won't tell it all. Right? Yeah, I've done so, these experiments a million times anecdotally and people never when you if you adjust it, especially we have all the technology to solve this problem. It's already everything already exists. If you adjust it slowly enough, you can lower light levels by 80 percent and people won't notice the difference in a in a street exactly. lighting application. They won't notice it if oh, you just lower it slowly. Sure. Back to your lighting cue. We do that in, in theaters. The lights mm -hmm. go down when the show's going to start. The light comes up when it ends. Listen, cueing. People, listen, people. people know. Oh, you, listen, the, 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 um, the people talk about human centric lighting and the health effects of lighting. I'll tell you this, what's emerged to be the most powerful in these arenas, the most applicable in the real world is queuing. And I'll give you a perfect example of queuing. So uh, Dr. Mark Ray, who works at Mount Sinai Light and Health Research Center, observed that um, it, elderly folks were falling when getting out of bed at night to go to the washroom. So if you just put a simple ox sensor under the bed, not nothing connected to a computer, just a basic passive infrared occupancy sensor and a little strip of um, tape light, 2700 Kelvin or lower, vertically mounted, okay, vertically mounted, and then a 27K light bulb in the room, not the fluorescent tube that is tripped by this, that vertical signal will tell that person's brain to stand up straight. And they reduced falls by 90%. 
Okay, Amazing. and it also because they didn't like, didn't they're cueing the person to stand up straight. They're cue, and then when he goes into the bathroom or she goes in the bathroom, they have a low warm light. Their circadian rhythm not not messed up, so they can go back to sleep. Another yeah. one was the uh, the NICU wards and hospitals. Um, Doctor Andrea Wilkerson uh, observed by accident by accident that the nurses the number one benefit they said was well you know what we love is that when we go in the NICU wards everybody's already awake and breastfeeding because the lights come on at 2000 Kelvin at a very low level and they go up to 3000 Kelvin over the course of the hour and everybody just wakes up naturally and yeah. then they're awake and we don't have to wake people up and there's no crying and there's this and people just wake up naturally and so queuing I'm telling you queuing is so powerful I agree. Listen, I live I live in Hawaii in a very rural area. And when I go back to the islands, if I've been on the mainland for a while and I go back there, I wake up at dawn. It just happens. Mm. And people who come and stay there for a while, and once they get into the rhythm, they start waking up at dawn. It's just like you get sleepy. They, they call nine o'clock Puna midnight because Ooh, everybody's yeah. like, okay, it's been dark for a couple of hours now. It's time to go to sleep. And then you're up, you're up with the dawn or actually before the dawn, just as it starts to break, mm. my body becomes aware of that. Mm -hmm. So I, and I cue on that. And as far as the, the stuff in the dark, I have these little glow rocks that I put around the, uh, the bathroom doors for my guests. I have a couple of Airbnbs. And, uh, and, and so when you get up at night, you can see the little glow rocks and walk between those and know you're going towards the, the washroom. Look at photolumescence is a very powerful technology as well. Yeah. Way underused in municipal street municipalities. They could use photolumescence for a lot of different issues like paths at night. I mean, those, fl sure. those photolumescent rods, they can be installed outside. They can, you can scrape snowblowers over top of them, everything, and they'll, they'll glow at night. So, yeah, I, I totally, there's a lot of things that we're missing out on with technologies that are ready to go. Um, you know, I saw an article about someone doing some kind of cross breeding or something but making trees that glow <laughs> i don't know about that frankenstein stuff i'd have to i don't know man but maybe <laughs> you know, glowing you, trees you, now we're now we're oh, getting freaky <laughs> oh yeah using the photo photo luminescent cells that are found sure. in the plankton sure so it's like okay well you know but anyways yeah <laughs> you talk about in your talks the finish line and I'm going to quote you because I, I found this, this quote to be very powerful. When we cannot see the heavens we belong to, we forget that we belong to the heavens. Yeah. Tell me about that realization. Where did that come from? Meditation? Like, how did you come across such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful statement? That was my statement? first epiphany about me getting involved with Dark Sky Advocacy back in 1986. I was performing in LA and in Vegas to the brightest cities in the world. Sure. And in between is the California desert. And some friends of mine took me out to watch Holly's Comet go by. And we had to drive at least three hours to get away from the glare of uh, Los Angeles. And there under the desert sky, I'm looking up at the magnificence of what I'm seeing. And the first thought in my head is, my God, this goes by unnoticed every night because people's lights are on. Mm-hmm. Such a tragedy. And I created, I, I created a performance art piece, uh, my very first Luma piece, uh, using a sage bundle. And you light it and you blow on it and it would glow and it would illuminate my face on a dark stage. And if you hit it, it makes all the little embers fall off like a bunch of shooting little stars. 
And I, you know, that was the question I posed. Do you, do you know another star besides the sun? <laughs> the Milky Way galaxy is billions of stars and it goes oh, by man. and notice every night because our lights are on. Think of the irony of that light traveling millions of light years to reach mm -hmm. our eyes and being shouted out right at the finish line mm -hmm. because of a street light. And then the next line was, when we can't see the heavens that we belong to, we forget that we belong to the heavens. Amen. So brother. that was part of the journey. That was the that was the uh, the first step, as they say, of the thousand uh, mile journey. You know, it's uh, if you uh, human history, you could almost um, take human history through the lens of our relationship to the stars. It's that. Yeah. It's that woven through it all. I mean, the idea that the pyramid and the Sphinx looks at the uh, the Leo um, uh, astrological sign or whatever, while the Sphinx is below the middle star in Orion's belt, and all these kind of powerful, all the different relationships to sunsets and sunrises, and and all these things that we have in our heritage, and and it's I I think that our present confusion as a species may be correlated to the to or maybe connected to our inability to see the stars and have that um, experience of humility. Well, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's it's um, the it, it, the research I did in my book really made me so aware of how our species could not have thrived without the stars. The stars taught us when to plant when to harvest, when the animals would migrate, when the fish would run, when it was time to gather eggs, when it was time to shear the sheep. It allowed us to navigate over the sea and over the land so we could spread our species. We could not have done what we did without our study of the stars. It just not would, it would not have happened. So we are so inexorably linked to it, even in our DNA. When you think that over a hundred thousand lifetimes or a hundred million lifetimes that the species has existed, in a single lifetime, we've lost our connection to the stars in one lifetime. So we have no clue what the implications or the consequences of that are gonna be. We just don't know. I mean, we may have been getting something in our in our uh, nervous system from viewing starlight for all these millions of years that we're not getting now that could be some kind of a nutrient totally you agree. know uh, i couldn't agree animal, more. you know uh, plants and uh, even plants even are... if it's a spiritual nutrient like those types of things like the you know the um uh, I, do, I don't know if you've read any literature on the exploration now. The uh, I think it's John Hopkins or some guys doing work with psilocybin mushrooms or I don't know, one of those things. And people are having these experiences. But, you know, it's interesting doing the Starving for Darkness podcast um, and now the Restoring Darkness podcast. Uh, it, it, the, the experiences of somebody who's had a, a brilliant, unbelievable starry sky experience is very similar to somebody that's had uh, experience with a um, psychedelic drug. The, like they describe oh, yeah, it the same. Yeah, they describe absolutely. it the same. Like a connection. Well, I mean, there's a connection going on. The, um, when you do psychotropics, there's an, an, an experience of expansion, of, mm -hmm. of merging with everything that's out yes. there. Right? So when you're out under a, a starry night sky and you're going, I'm part of that. And it's, yes. 
the immensity of it. I, I, it brings me back to, a, I took a friend of mine out to see the, into the desert uh, back in 19, oh God, it was 85 or something like this. We were both working in Vegas and we went out into the desert and he had never seen the moon set because mm. he, he grew up in New York and in, in upstate mm. New York. So he never really could see a, a distant horizon and he'd never seen the Milky Way. Hmm. And um, that's um, a tragedy. Uh, yes, <laughs> there are people who have experiences of weeping the first time they see the Milky Way. Hmm. This is not this is not just a singular experience, but a lot of people have had this. And I kind of think of it as it's either a they're weeping for the joy and the beauty of it and the magnificence of it, or they're weeping, realizing what has been missing in their life all of these years. I feel like the lumen beings, creatures of the light, F place is a good place to stop, but I can't. I, I just can't. I got to add on to one of the points that you made earlier. And Scott's been telling me we got to keep these to 40 minutes. Too bad, Restoring Darkness listeners, because it's uh, we're just going to keep it going for a little bit longer here. Have you ever spoken to a flat earther, someone that believes in flat earth? God bless them. I mean, well, have you ever, you I, know, I've had a serious conversation with someone like that. Well, you know, I can understand why some people might be able to wrap their head around something like that. But the issue is, like, if, if there was a flat Earth, how come if I start in Texas and I go due east, I'm going to eventually come back to where I am in Texas? Yeah, they don't believe that. But light pollution is certainly evidence of the... These are people who do not travel much. No, but light pollution is another is another uh, proof of a round earth, okay? So as you travel away from a city and into the darkness, the light pollution goes down the horizon. You can watch yes. it happen, okay? Yeah. Um, but what was interesting was your point about our relationship to the stars and all the things we've discovered. Look, without this, without a clear, unblemished night, there's no Galileo. There's no Ptolemy. There's no Copernicus. There's no discovering that the earth revolves around the sun. You understand what I'm talking about? Only through viewing these astrological bodies with very rudimentary equipment were we able yes. to discover as a, as a species that actually, like, think about it. The earth is flat, is not really, um, you know, is, is, you know, to say that the earth is a sphere is not really that ridiculous. I mean, the sun is round, the moon is round. You can see ships coming over the horizon, these types of things. There, there's lots of anecdotal evidence that the Earth is round, okay? But to discover that it revolves around the sun, that's incredible. Imagine Copernicus telling the Pope or whatever, hey, man, sit down, okay? Okay, now wait a second. Before you go any further, Copernicus did not publish his papers until after his death. Okay. Because he knew that he'd be burned at the stake. Right. And he published him while he was alive. And so now here's Galileo comes, you know, many years later and starts teaching Copernican theory. Yes. Right. And now it was only like a few years ago, like maybe 15, 20 years ago, that the church finally recanted their position on Galileo. But hang on. Years later. But think about it for a second. Think about it for a second. Okay. okay. Those two things are brought together as if they're the same. It's not that difficult to believe that the earth is round or a sphere, okay? But it's actually mind-blowing to think that it revolves around the sun and how people were able to determine that, not during the day, but by looking at the stars okay. at night. Yeah, okay. 
Like, that's incredible. And imagine, like, telling people about, hey, guys, sit down for a second. You know how when the sun rises and goes around the earth, that's not actually what's happening, right? No, the earth is going right. around the sun. Get out of here, man. That's not, I see it every day go around the earth. The sun goes around. What about the moon? No, the moon goes around the earth. Oh, okay, the moon goes around the earth, eh? But the earth goes around the sun. Like, a lot of this stuff, it's not as intuitive as we assume it to be. And the only reason we were able to make these absolutely unbelievable discoveries is because we had a clear unblemished eye to look at. And and for us to say there's nothing more for us to experience or discover is is hubris at its highest level, Marlon. Oh, I mean, I can't wait till they start bringing in stuff from the web. I mean, the web telescope. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, uh, uh, there's a guy in my neighborhood actually worked on the Hubble telescope when it, before it was launched. And oh, really? look at how that changed yes. uh, a lot of the consciousness of the planet. It's like seeing mm -hmm. those deep space images. So the, the James Webb telescope is going to do the same thing. As far as flat earthers, I honestly have more important things to do than to try to convince. People I was just like making that. the comparison. I have the expression never teach a pig to sing. It's a waste of time and it really annoys the pig. <laughs> but not only it does, you're right about that. But my point was that it's by seeing the stars that we made that tremendous discovery that we actually are, our, our, our body is the body that we're on, the wet rock is actually revolving around a sun and the sun is revolving around the universe those are incredible discoveries made by viewing the stars these lumen the idea of lumen beings not human beings <laughs> lumen beings um i think is a good place to close on give us your final thoughts and why we're creatures of the light well i mean you're using the term lumen being that's what i use in my uh, tedx i know talk. that's what i that's why oh, yeah, that's your term not mine yeah, from your presentation okay, thank you the lumen being um well, there's a lot of ways that we experience light. We can experience it uh, ocularly, which is a very, very sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum. I mean, mm. just an infinitesimal amount. It's measured in nanometers. And a nanometer is so small, you can't see it with the human eye, which there's some irony there because you're using a, 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 a unit of measurement to measure a wavelength that we can see, but we can't see the unit of measurement, right? So that's how small a nanometer is. We can feel certain types of light from infrared, when our, from the, the ultraviolet on our skin, it will cause it to burn. So we are able to experience light in different ways. We experience radio waves when we hear it translated through a, a receiver. Um, we're able to experience microwaves, all of this, again, on the electromagnetic spectrum because it's in our little machines or it's coming through our cellular phones. But there's another type of light that we can't see, but we feel it. And this is what the lumen being experiences. The lumen being is experienced the light of love. Now we're getting into a philosophical ending here. But nobody can prove the existence of love but you could never, ever try to tell new parents that they don't love their kids. Mm -hmm. Oh, love doesn't exist. Yeah, try telling that to a new mom or mm -hmm. a new dad. Love does exist, right? So that's a frequency that we feel. That is a frequency that plants feel because they've done studies that here's a plant, you show mm -hmm. some attention to this and talk to it, and that plant's going to thrive, and the other one doesn't. So we are 
we are transmitters of light as mm. well as receptors of light. Mm. And as we go forward in the darkness, the metaphorical darkness that is the world today, we have to continue to shine our light. And for me, unconditional love is the lighthouse because the lighthouse is on whether there's a ship there or not. It's just on. And that's what we can be as unconditionally loving people. We're just constantly sending that out. We're constantly loving and finding something, a reason to love somebody for whatever. I mean, I'm here in New Orleans, there's a big homeless problem, people sleeping on the street. And I can say, God bless that man for being able to find a place to sleep and be able to sleep that easily. And for, for all of us having such a hard time falling asleep, this guy can do it on a sidewalk. Good for him. So there's always a positive aspect of everything that we encounter in life. And now with this lighting pollution issue that we have, it's bringing us back to the awareness of what we lost. So we would never have known what we lost unless we lost it first. As Joni Mitchell write, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Mm -hmm. Well, now the dark skies are gone, our view of the stars are gone, and you bring that to people's attention, they go, yeah. And see, so that's what the television series about, The Astro Tourist. It's about taking that deep cultural dive and talking to these people around the world who still tell their stories about the stars because they're all different. The only ones we know are the ones from the Greek myths. Mm -hmm. right? But uh, in other places, they still use the stars, like the aboriginals in, in, uh, uh, in Australia, the emu in the sky. It's a, it's, it's a dark shadow constellation. They don't connect the constellation with the stars, but with the shadows. When that emo is laying at a certain way over the uh, horizon, it's time to gather the eggs. And there's these ancient stone carvings in the rocks showing the emo lined up exactly with the one in the sky. So there's still places in the world where they rely on the stars um, to survive, to live, and we are now starting to reclaim that. And, and thank goodness that we are. And I appreciate you having this program to get this out to people. Otherwise, they would still be in the dark about light. <laughs> well, I thank you so much for, for being a guest, Marlon. And uh, I'd like to encourage the Restoring Darkness listeners. I know I'm going to get one. Um, and I'm going to send it to him in Hawaii to get a signed copy because I love a signed copy. Find his book, Astro Tourism, Stargazers, Eclipse Chasers, and the Dark Sky Movement. Um, and it's an, the star tourism is an interesting, it definitely, if you follow, if you go to uh, restoringdarkness.com and click on the news section on that, you'll see a consistent updated news feed there and a lot of it is about cities and municipalities and parks deciding to go dark sky why are they doing this Be not because they want to make the star dark yeah that's that's a reason why because it's financially profitable for them to advertise themselves as that and so it's a win-win especially for the lighting industry folks if you made it to the end I know I speak on behalf of Marlon his name is Michael Marlon he goes by Marlon check out his book and all his social media is on the website, but I thank you deeply from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma. 
illuminating the pursuit of darkness.